On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Christ. Almighty Father, uh, this is a day where we say audacious things. We say big, audacious things like Jesus Christ is risen from the dead. And we say it with a joy. And it's a joy that for some of us is a palpable reality. It is a joy that for others of us is a complete enigma. But for 2,000 years, you have been doing a remarkable work in people's lives. You have been uh, reaching down into people's lives who find the whole story an absolute enigma. And you have been doing a work of transformation, of opening eyes, of working within us, and showing how this unlikely story is the animating story of the entire world and the story which brings us deep life and peace. And so, to add to all the audacious things we say, I want to add the audacious prayer, do that now in us. In Jesus' name, amen. Go ahead and have a seat, everybody. And um, it would be helpful if you would keep on the same page that the creed is on, that little story just above it. Um, so, so that greeting that we've been saying all morning, Alleluia, 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 Christ is risen, and you say, Alleluia, Alleluia, Alleluia. Yeah, fantastic. I know I'm starting to get an eye roll or two, but I'm not, I'm not fussed at all. Um, the, um, the, that greeting goes back right to the beginning of Christianity. I mean, Christians have been saying that greeting right from the very beginning, and here's part of why. All the joy of Christianity, uh, all the insight of Christianity, everything in Christianity uh, that really matters and that is really significant rests upon that big, bold claim that Jesus Christ died, and he for real died, and then three days later he for real uh, rose from the dead. In fact, if you delete the uh, idea of the resurrection of Jesus Christ from Christianity, absolutely everything else in the whole, uh, all, all, everything else falls apart. Uh, you might be able to hold on to a few kind of moral insights or something like that, but even then, uh, without the resurrection, the motivation for the Christian life, the reason it makes sense, all begins to crumble and fall apart. But on the other hand, when the resurrection of Jesus Christ is right at the center of everything, then all that is compelling and all that is beautiful and all that is challenging about Christianity comes alive and makes coherent sense. Now, there's no way a single sermon can flesh out all the implications of the resurrection. In fact, all of Christianity is meant to do that. 
But what I want to do is I want to look at that little reading. It's a little vignette from uh, the first, from the day that Jesus rose from the dead and one of his very first meetings with his disciples. And here's what I want to show you. The resurrection of Jesus Christ means many, many things, but here's one. The resurrection of Jesus Christ means that there is a particular kind of peace that can transcend and ultimately defeat the horror of our world. And that special kind of peace that can transcend and ultimately defeat the horror of our world is something we need to receive. It's not automatic. And it's something we need to share. It's something we get to give away. Let me show you what I mean and come with me into the story. Take a look at that, um, the first line, the line with the little number uh, 19 on it. Now, on the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews. Now, real quick, when it says the fear of the Jews, it means the fear of uh, some of the corrupt leaders who had uh, contributed and helped arrange Jesus' death. Everybody in this story is Jewish. But, but just stop there for a minute and picture the scene. Uh, Jesus' disciples, at least 10 of them, there might have been more of them uh, in this room, they are hiding behind a locked door. And I want you to imagine that locked door, because that locked door is an image of the trauma the disciples are experiencing at that moment, on the one hand, and on the other hand, it's an image of the dilemma that they're facing given that Jesus has died. What do I mean by that? Well, consider the trauma that the disciples uh, are experiencing in that moment. Let me set up the story. Go back in time with the disciples. Uh, some months, probably years before this, every one of these disciples uh, had, had not been disciples of Jesus. They had not been followers of Jesus. They'd just been regular people. But at some point, all of them had met up with Jesus. Maybe he was traveling through their village. Maybe uh, they heard about him from afar and they went out to see him. But at some point, they came into contact with Jesus Christ and they watched him do things. Uh, and they heard him say things. And famously, they watched as he healed people and he did remarkable signs that they could not explain. And at some point, given what they had experienced from Jesus, they bought in. And all these people, they bought in big time. They cashed in all their chips on the bet that Jesus Christ was the Messiah. That he was the one chosen by God to come and revolutionize this world and, and set this broken world right. And so they left their jobs and they left their families and... They sacrificed greatly, but nevertheless, it was worth it because Jesus was worth it. And in joy, they followed him for months or maybe years. And then four nights before this story, it all fell apart in ways they could not have imagined. Because Jesus was arrested about four nights before this. And then Jesus was put on trial and put yourself in the minds of the disciples. None of this is fitting in their categories. And as they watch Jesus on trial, he doesn't lift a finger to defend himself. How could he do that? 
and then the unimaginable. I mean, there was no rescue. It happened. He was condemned. And not only was he condemned, but he was executed. And in that moment, their world died. They'd, done, they'd given everything to this guy, and there he is, dead. And dead on a cross, which was just the most humiliating way the Romans had ever invented to kill people. And so as they watched Jesus died, and as the day after they internalized the impact of it, it was like the horror of this world, the very darkest horror of this world, horror that you know a bit of in your own life in particular ways, began to choke them. And they might have expected that the Romans would try to pull something like that. The Romans were used to killing people who claimed to be the Messiah. But it was worse than that because it was even some within their own community, some of their religious leaders that they would have otherwise had reason to expect, had kind of turned on them and had contributed to Jesus' death. And that's why they're afraid and they've locked the door. Of course they've locked the door. And in that room, that locked door is an attempt to keep the horror that has broken in on their lives that's trying to keep it at bay. But the problem is there's something kind of futile about that locked door, the attempt to keep the horror at bay, because, because the horror that they fear on the other side of that door was a horror that was already within the room, in their midst. Why? Judas, one of the disciples, had been the one that betrayed him. And even Peter had denied him. And what that means, in this moment, they don't know who to trust. They're looking at each other. And every time they lock eyes, they're wondering, are you another one? And so they lock the door, but it's futile because the horror they fear is already within their room, and it's ultimately within their own hearts. It's an image of the trauma that they're going through. But it's also not only an image of their trauma, it's an, Im it's an image of their dilemma. They are facing a magnificent problem right now. What do I mean? Well, remember, all of these disciples, everybody in the story is Jewish, and so they've been steeped in the Jewish scriptures, the Hebrew scriptures, what we call the Old Testament. And in the long story that you get in the Hebrew scriptures, what you find out is that the horror and the brokenness of this world that they're trying to lock out but that they find in their midst anyway, that horror is rooted in, the hum in humanity's rejection of God. So just quick backstory here about the beginning of the Bible. Uh, when the Bible opens up, when the story opens up, uh, God creates the world in love, and God creates and designs humanity for a particular kind of relationship. God designs humanity uniquely to thrive in a relationship of joyful intimacy with God. And the idea is that we're supposed to enjoy God and enjoy God's beauty and in this bond of relationship, God enjoys us and in a way enjoys our own beauty. Another way to say that is that we were designed at the very beginning to be loved by God and then to love God in return. And if you were to peer down to the, into the deepest desires of your soul, you would find those two desires, to be loved and to love. And the Bible uses this word 
peace. Everybody say peace. peace. Everybody, this word peace is meant to describe this joyful intimacy with God that we were designed for. But then in the story, the horror came. And the horror came when humanity rejected God. And the idea is that we, we all of us, this happens for all of us, we, we have this internal intuition that we will thrive more if we declare our autonomy from God and go it alone. Live for ourselves and not for God nor for other people. Trouble is, it, it terribly backfires. And what happens is living for self ruptures and kills that intimacy and when that intimacy dies peace within us dies and it's one of the reasons why our hearts all of us are hungry all the time hungry hungry for a peace that we can never attain now another way to say this whole thing is that the the hebrew scriptures that had shaped the disciples told them that uh, all of us have locked ourselves out from God. We have locked ourselves out from peace, and we have locked ourselves into a place of horror. And you say, that's a, it's kind of a dramatic word to use, but not in the Bible, because the Bible takes the horror of this world very seriously. And the Bible says you can see the, the horror of this world most particularly when you consider death. Because in the scriptures, death hangs over humanity. Death looms over humanity. And the, the reign, so to speak, of death is a sign that we are living in a world where the horror certainly seems to win. In the scriptures, it's as if death is some sort of wicked tyrant that stands over us and leers at us as if to say, you try to evade me and you try to postpone me and you try to procrastinate the inevitable, but don't worry, says death to us deep within our hearts. Don't worry, I'll track you down and I'll find you in the end. And that's a horrible, horrible thing. And that's the dilemma from the disciples in this moment, because when they had seen Jesus die, it's not just that they saw their friend die or their mentor die. As traumatic as that would be, it, it causes a massive problem for them because they watched the one die who they thought might be able to liberate them from the horror. And if Jesus does die, if, if the one in whom they hoped died, now they are left locked in the door and in the room of their horror with nothing to rescue them. And then watch what happens. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked, Jesus came and stood among them. And look at what he says. Peace be with you. Okay, stay with the disciples in that room. How did Jesus get past the locked door? I have no idea. And it doesn't matter. Because what matters is that as soon as Jesus shows up, that locked door doesn't matter. There's a way in which Jesus now, he is not uh, troubled by the rules that might normally govern things. And when Jesus uh, w 
gets past that locked door one way or another. He does two things that go together. First of all, he says, peace. More about that in a moment. But then the second thing he does is he shows the disciples his wounds. And why does Jesus do that? He, he, his hands were pierced. His side was stabbed. Clearly, he's healed. And yet in another way, they're still there. How does that work? Why? Why does he show his wounds? And part of it is to um, confirm his identity. Jesus wants them to know that the one who is standing in their room and has walked past that locked door is the same one that they saw die three days before. But there's something more. Think of it this way. The contradiction, right? There's a contradiction here. He's a wounded man on the one hand. On the other hand, he's alive. He's showing the wounds which killed him, and on the other hand, he's alive. That's, that, that's not supposed to happen. Do you agree? Okay. I think you agree. But those two things, that contradiction going together is an indicator that Jesus' defeat is not the defeat that it appeared to be. Jesus' death was not the defeat that it appeared to be, but rather it was a victory. What do I mean by that? Well, like we've already kind of implied, dead people don't come back to life. Everybody agrees with that. And the disciples agreed with that. It's very important that you know that no one on this day was expecting Jesus to come back to life. So if you're here today and you say, this is crazy that these people think that Jesus came back to life, you're in great company. Because none of the disciples believed that that would happen. And yet, despite their doubts, here they are, they are looking at Jesus, and he's alive, and they're looking at the signs of his death. Both are there in the same moment. And over time, it took a little bit, but over time, the disciples realized that when Jesus died, it looked like a defeat, but it was in actual fact Jesus going to battle. It was Jesus going to war against sin and evil and death and everything that keeps us locked in the room of the horror. And they realized that the fact that Jesus rose from the dead indicated that Jesus had won in particular, that Jesus had defeated that old tyrant death that had been leering over them. And if Jesus, the disciples eventually realized, if Jesus had defeated death, then it means that Jesus had defeated the horror of our rebellion against God. And if Jesus had defeated the horror of our rebellion against God, then it also means that Jesus had unlocked the door so that we could enjoy real intimacy with God the thing that we were made for. And that's why when Jesus shows up, he leads with that great word, peace be with you. And it's not just a greeting. And it's not just chill out, calm down. What he's saying when he says, peace be with you, is he's saying something like this. Disciples, three days ago, you watched me die. And as you watched me die, you looked into the heart of horror of this world. It's as if Jesus says, disciples, as I was dying, I was entering the horror. And I was submerged under the weight of the horror of this world. And I went all the way down and I drained the cup to the dregs. Everything that you fear most and everything that is most fearsome that you are not wise enough to fear, I went to battle against it. And I battled against evil and horror and sin and death. 
And I want you to know that I won the battle. And it's as if Jesus says, do you know why I fought that battle? Because it was costly. I fought that battle so that I could give you a peace that the horror of this world can never cancel. It's as if Jesus says, I died and I rose again to give you peace with God, to give and restore that joyful intimacy with God as your Father, not because you deserve it, not because you're good people, but because I am good and I love to give what people don't deserve. It's as if Jesus says, and that's why there's no better greeting for me to pack all that in one word than to say, peace be with you. Now, Emmanuel, none of the disciples expected Jesus to rise again. That's why the door was locked. And they all thought death was the end because, come on, it's always the end. And they all thought Jesus' death was the triumph of horror. But what I want you to know today is that Christianity began when the horror of this world was interrupted by a peace they did not expect. And that's the way authentic Christianity always works. Authentic Christianity happens when Jesus interrupts the horror of our sin with a peace that we do not deserve and that we cannot produce and very often we're not expecting. I could say it differently. The resurrection of Jesus means, as I said at the beginning, that there is a kind of peace, a quality of peace that transcends and ultimately defeats the horror of this world. And that special kind of peace, it's not just inward serenity. It's not just the absence of conflict. It's a peace where God uh, uh, reconciles us to himself so that God becomes our adopted father. And we get to taste that joyful intimacy with him, which is the deepest longings of our heart. And ever since this first Easter, Jesus has been offering this peace free of charge to whoever will receive it. Look back at the reading. Look at the little number 21. Jesus says to them again, peace be with you. Needed to say it twice. As the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. Pause. Uh, that was the moment that Christianity went from being an experience on a particular day to a movement. Because Jesus, in this moment, what he's doing is he's authorizing and he's commissioning these disciples first to receive this peace at an experiential level within their lives and then to share this peace with others. And that's what the last line, verse 23, is all about. Little, little number 23. If you forgive the sins of any, Jesus says, they are forgiven them. If you withhold this for forgiveness from any, it is withheld. What in the world? Well, the point is, Jesus is saying that peace with God requires amnesty, forgiveness, and pardon. Why? Well, remember, sin is our rejection of God. Sin is the door that locks us out from peace with God. And it's a door that we have locked by our own choice, but it's a door that we cannot unlock by ourselves. And Jesus, when he died and rose again, he blew that door off its hinges. And therefore, in order to grant peace, he comes with this offer of forgiveness and amnesty and pardon so that we can be reconciled. And ever since this, that day, this has been the primary message of the church 
in every generation. We get to offer and proclaim peace with God through forgiveness of sins to anyone who will say yes and receive it. And it's a wonderful privilege to be able to offer that. And it's a great privilege. It's a privilege I get to do right now. I get to say to you today, I know this is crazy and bold. I get to say to you right now that there is a God who loves you, that there is a peace and an intimacy with God that you are made for that maybe you've never tasted, and that there is nothing that you have ever done in your life that can ultimately stand in the way of you being forgiven because of what Jesus has done. And therefore, Jesus says, do you want it? Receive it. What a privilege. And it's important that I point out that there's a warning here, isn't there? Do you see that? The very last words? If you withhold the forgiveness from anyone, it is withheld. Now, that doesn't mean we get to withhold forgiveness from people who irritate us. Okay? <laughs> it's tempting as that as for some, you know. Anyways, I'm not going to go there. What it means, and this is important, it means that we can only proclaim forgiveness and assure people and promise people of peace with God to those who believe in Christ and entrust your life to Jesus. It means we're not allowed to pretend that somebody has peace with God when they haven't said yes to that peace with God. We're not allowed to pretend. And that means that peace with God is not automatic. It needs to be received, and it needs to be received intentionally. You need to say yes to Jesus. And I can hear somebody saying, uh, okay, I'm not entirely following, but the, vaguely the idea of peace with God sounds good, and the idea of forgiveness sounds good, and I like the idea that there is a type of peace that can defeat the horror of this world. Wouldn't it be great if that was true? But I'm just not sure I can buy it. I'm just not sure I can believe it. Even if I try hard and I, like, grip my teeth, I'm not sure faith is going to come out. And if that's you, again, you're in good company. Because in the last 2,000 years, there has been not one follower of Jesus who has produced faith by themselves. There has been not one authentic Christian who became a Christian on our own steam. There has been not one authentic Christian who ever produced faith or sustained faith on our own steam. It's just not how it works. Even the disciples, especially the disciples, couldn't do that. Did you know that by this point, they had already heard about Jesus' resurrection? A woman called Mary Magdalene had run, it, run into Jesus earlier in the day, and she comes back to them, and she's like, check it out. Jesus is risen. And they, nobody believed her. Their hearts were locked shut against trusting Jesus, just like the door of their room was locked shut. And that's one of the reasons why Jesus gives the Holy Spirit. Look back, little number 22. Jesus breathes on them and says, receive the Holy Spirit. What's the Holy Spirit? Uh, well, the Holy Spirit is God who reaches into our hearts. And just like Jesus bypassed the locked door of the disciples' room, the Holy Spirit bypasses the locked door of our doubt and our unbelief. And the Holy Spirit 
uh, allows us to see both with our critical thinking and our mind and also with our will, we are able to see the horror of our sin. We're able to see the horror of a life lived locked out from God. But then in the same moment in a remarkable way, we're able to see Jesus Christ. And we're able to see that Jesus Christ, when he says, peace be with you, it's not just something he said a long time ago to people a long way away. It's something that he says to you. He says it to you right now. And as the Holy Spirit allows you to see that, the Holy Spirit allows you to hear Jesus say, peace to you. And in that same moment, the Holy Spirit floods you with love. And it's a love that you've never experienced before. It's a love that flows directly from God the Father. It's as if God the Father looks at you and says, I made you for myself and your heart will never know peace until you find your rest in me. And it's as if the Father says to you through the Holy Spirit right into your soul, You've been running from me for a long time and you've been trying to lock me out, but I sent Jesus Christ to blow that door off its hinges. And I aim to make you my own child by adoption and grace and mercy and love. And I aim to make you my child for forever, so won't you come home? Friends, for 2,000 years that's been happening. Billions and billions. Jesus Christ has spoken to people in every generation and said there is a peace that transcends and ultimately defeats the horror of our world. But won't you say yes? Won't you receive it? And then, having received it, we get to share it. And there's no greater privilege than to share with someone else the privilege of knowing peace with God. Alleluia, alleluia, alleluia. Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. Alleluia, alleluia, alleluia. Hello, everyone. My name is Jim Saladin. I'm the rector here at Emmanuel Anglican Church. Uh, our church exists to see and describe and reflect the beauty of Jesus Christ for the flourishing of our city. And I hope this podcast encouraged you in that way towards Christ. If you're here in New York City, we'd love to see you. Please join us on Sundays at 11 a.m. Generosity drives everything we do at Emmanuel. And if you'd like to contribute, please visit www.emmanuelanglicannyc.com give.